Welcome. Don't adjust your dial. Profile Polysop Podcast coming at you. Michael Pickering here with our good friend Gregory Day, a writer, director, bookseller, and the voice behind Hitsville AD, the fanatical sect of God of subcultures and fervent rambling of all breeds of cinematic pleasures. Gregory Day, how are you doing out there? I'm great, man. How are you? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. And let's jump right into this juicy list you have for us. What are we doing today? <laughs> yeah, today we're doing uh, top 10 uh, comic book movie classics. Uh, this will be a list of, uh, of flicks that either predate the corporate superhero cycle we're in or are or is outside the, of that uh, that corporate uh, corporate offerings we have. All right. I'm so ready to get into this one. All right, let's jump <laughs> in. What's coming in at number 10? Yeah, number 10, we got a, a little little base level uh, entry entry flick here. Uh, we're talking about Batman the movie from 1966, the Adam West Batman, for all you people who know who that is. Uh, this is a perfect colorful uh you know goofy comic book movie that's got uh it just illustrates you know the uh the silliness of what it means to be a man dressed in, in a bat outfit saving saving gotham city <laughs> from from goofy colored criminals and uh you know it's kind of the opposite of everything uh of everything that batman represents in our current culture uh in this film uh it's him and bat him and robin uh it stems from the, the tv series of the 60s and he faces up against four foes the riddler who was really like sort of the main um big bad guy of, of the tv series uh the joker the penguin and catwoman it can't be fun it's got all sorts of of, of uh, oddities like batman running around with a bomb trying to trying to get rid of it uh, the bat boat, uh, Batman being attacked by a sh being attacked by a shark, um, and has repellent for it. And then it turns out the <laughs> shark is a robot, so he's got a robot shark repellent on his on his belt. And uh, yeah, it's goofy fun. Uh, it's got a lot of colors, and uh, yeah, it's a great uh, Sunday morning uh, flick. This was this was a great way to open up my Sunday morning with looking at trailers. I mean, this trailer was first and just ridiculous, simply ridiculous trailer. It was so so forth wall breaking and so batterific if i may say <laughs> and and to think what really hits me is that for all the things cinema was doing at this time you know the new wave movements that we've talked about all over the world at the same time we get this and i've seen this when i saw it way back in the day and they truly truly don't care what people think about this movie like they really took the kookiness of the comic books of that day and brought it straight to the big screen and didn't even try to take it serious. I mean, it's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something to say about it, the idea of uh, mainstream culture taking comic books seriously, which we'll talk about as we get through the list. But yeah, uh, this adaptation of Batman is not serious at all. Um, and it, it kind of all is can be summed up with Batman running around with a giant bomb in his hand and looking at the screen and saying, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> all right then what do we have for number nine yeah number nine uh i should say i should preface that uh, some of these uh films on this list are not actual adaptations of comics but influenced by comics as well and uh the first one i want to talk about is a movie from 1955 called artists and models it's a dean martin jerry lewis movie uh so the famous martin and lewis comedy duo um which is just most of their films were, were like comedies and musicals because Dino always got to sing at least one tune in those movies. Uh, but this is 
uh, a film where they play roommates and uh, Dino is a comic book writer and Jerry Lewis is sort of his uh, man-child friend who has these nightmares at night and he speaks about all these strange, weird uh, plots going on in his dreams and and of course Dean Martin is stealing them for his comic book ideas. Um, but the fantastic thing about this movie is that it's uh, like Batman, the movie, it's this colorful pop art film that incorporates all these great uh, set pieces because the director Frank Tashlin came from working on Looney Tunes and it really started to incorporate a lot of really um, those animated gags into live action. He was like one of the first filmmakers to do that. So there's all these like wonderfully um, these wonderful gags you would see in, in cartoons, like people being blown up and surviving, or uh, just sort of like things that would kill a normal person, but kind of like these you know breaking the breaking the reality of of our world. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but the the really great thing about this film is that while Dean Martin is creating these worlds based on Jerry Lewis's dreams, uh, Jerry Lewis actually has some sort of uh, formula in his mind that some bad guys want. It turns into like a real comic book plot of like Russian uh, gangsters or, or um, you know Cold War espionage plot. It really turns into this pulp action plot of these guys who are after them because Jerry Lewis has dreamt up this uh, formula that happens to be real. So it's really it's a it's a great way to show how uh, pulp. Uh, adventure and comic book aesthetics really started to to get into uh, mainstream cinema interesting interesting and before i even go let, let me ask you what do you mean by like pulp genre or pulp influence yeah so if you think back about um adventure stories of the 30s and 40s or maybe even in the 20s so you have like things like dick tracy or um Conan Monty's or Tarzan, uh, yeah, like mystery stuff could, could be kind of going there too. Um, but it just said these adventure stories that were printed in like dime store um, paperbacks, serialized, of course. So you had a bunch of them to read. So um, just different, just different aspects of uh, of adventure stories, I guess, of uh, of that time period. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And you know, I I had not seen this one. I had not heard of it, but you know, I definitely at least know who Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis are as far as like relevant actors of their time. But this trailer did make me think and and the way they kind of went through the motions of talking about color in the movie. Since this came out in 1955, was this maybe one of the early color films while black and white cinema was still going on? And I asked this question in particular because after watching the trailer i really had no clue what this movie was about um it did seem kooky you know but um but that was like one of the big things i took from the trailer do you know uh no it's not one of the earliest color films because color kind of goes back to wizard of oz coming out in the 30s but um okay. i would say what they're really looking at is is selling the idea of like technicolor which is the you know the idea that if you go to the cinema to see uh, okay. a Technicolor production, it's going to look better than your television does. Uh, and the movie still looks amazing. I mean, there's some really great yellows and reds and blues. Uh, primary colors, of course, are always great in Technicolor. Um, but yeah, it's just got this really deep, rich colors. And I think that's really what they're getting at as far as uh, you know pushing that in the advertisement. That makes, that makes complete sense because back in the 50s, almost everyone still had black and white TVs. So the only yes. way to see color was at cinema. All right. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Good. Yeah. Good. yeah. All right. Now, where are we going to number eight? Yeah. Number eight, we're talking about the first movie produced from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990. 
And uh, I think people from our generation, you and I, uh, should be very familiar with this, but I do feel like these characters are still hanging around in our pop culture today. But in 1990 was when the first live action film of this dropped. And the reason I want to talk about it is because in a weird way, the movie uh, stemmed from the cartoon series. Um, Its popularity was a huge smash um, in American uh, culture. But that TV series was based on an underground comic book. Um, And so it it was really... Um, adapted for children into the TV show. Uh, but then when the film came out, it was sort of a mixture of this um, weird underground comic where it took place in a real gritty New York City, but it had these colorful characters at the center of it. So if you're not familiar with the Ninja Turtles, it's a uh, these four turtles that are turned into human-sized um, beings from toxic waste in the sewer. And they, uh, they're teenagers, so they have all this angst and and love to party and, and listen to, to like hip hop and break dance, but they also are trained ninjas. And so they are also protecting the city of New York and specifically this flick, they're fighting the Foot Clan, which is another um, system of ninjas, the bad guys in the city led by the Shredder, who is their ultimate uh, villain. Um, and so, yeah, this is something that was really weird and just it really explores uh, some of the strangest of comic books, like, you know, animals being turned into human sized uh, creatures by. Uh, toxic waste um it just if you think about that's just a strange concept in itself but then it was a huge um cultural milestone especially in the late 80s early 90s that uh, this you know the strange tale kind of took over um so yeah i'm interested i'm sure you've seen this one yes yes and i'll say a few things before i really dive into my thing so teenage mutant ninja turtles still very much and today's pop culture they've had multiple movies over the past 10 to 5 years um, i think the most recent one maybe in like 2018 or something like that or 2019 there's still uh cartoons going on like so teenage mutant ninja turtles really kind of never left they've been here since the 1980s in the cartoon and even before that with the comic book and i'll tell you one of the things i remember from the cartoon that i still think about today it's they used to do at the end of the shows these little uh kind of like if you know type of things or educational mm-hmm. things and, and Michelangelo would be brushing his teeth and Donatello walks up and turns off the water and he's like, hey, you don't need to waste water while you're brushing <laughs> your teeth. And I, to, the, to this day, I'm still like, I'm brushing my teeth. I'm like, turn off the water. Donatello oh, yeah. says, don't need to waste. <laughs> but anyway, so a classic. I think you're right. This is most certainly a classic. Taking the story and having fun with it, but also having some really serious moments like the shredder in here the main villain is portrayed as a serious character and there are multiple like really family kind of um storylines that you get attached to the characters and then suddenly kookiness ensues and people are on skateboards and eating pizza and stuff like this but i'll actually admit to this one though i actually rewatched this within the past year or two and relatively speaking I think it still holds up 32 years later, like the practical effects and the storyline and the script. Like, I was pretty amazed at how well it held up. Yeah, yeah, I think it does really hold up. And I think you uh, hit, hit, hit upon something that I think is very important to telling a compelling story, especially when you're dealing with these kind of uh, goofier aspects is that, yeah, this movie does have its silly moments. Um, things of like, you know the turtles paying for pizza and stuff and you know, like kind of the jokes that they go along with it but i think a, a a good balance to a story is effective so you can kind of get to know these characters and have fun with them but then once it does get to the plot where 
the shredder comes in and they have to fight uh, the shredder uh, that it does get serious and it, you do feel the weight of that part of the story and i think it's really important to train to uh to tell a good story when you're making a movie and it's amazing it's amazing to say that you know that to feel the weight of a story while you're watching four teenage <laughs> mutant ninja turtles fight a guy named shredder as if he's uh-huh. going to shred the cheese on their pizza <laughs> and you feel some emotional attachment i mean Thank plus you. i don't think I don't think it's by chance that during the Cold War era and nuclear proliferation, we get a story about mutation and animals from toxic waste. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, and especially if you think in the 1980s, you have Chernobyl, uh, the Ukrainian nuclear plant that goes um, goes nuclear and melts down and throws all this radiation all over the world. And this story is kind of like, look, you know, draw some attention to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's go on to continue our conversation about toxic waste and go to number seven. Yeah, yeah, I think more uh, more related to what you're talking about here is a, a film from 1984 called The Toxic Avenger. Now, this is not a, this is not a film yes. <laughs> that is based on a comic, but was more of a parody of Marvel comics, really. Uh, so we have, uh, if you're familiar with Marvel comics, the characters like the Hulk or Spider-Man are transformed by uh, radiation. And uh, like the Ninja Turtles, uh, you know, people being or people are being transformed into things by toxic waste or or um, radiation. But this is a parody of that, where uh, our main character is a scrawny little nerd who works at a gym who's picked on by a bunch of cokehead yuppies, and he is transformed into a uh, deformed beefcake by toxic waste by being jumped into a vat of toxic waste and then he goes on to try to save his town which is called Tromaville because uh, this is a trauma production uh, which is uh, <laughs> for those not in the know is a uh, low budget uh, production studio who is still going strong today who makes some great uh, schlocky fun movies but also have uh, some good political messages in there most of the time um, but yeah this is when you really get to the point of talking about uh, standing up uh, you know, standing up for environmentalism and standing up against big business and protecting your your uh, local community from these things. And Tox- Toxie, uh, the main character here, the hero of our story, uh, does have to go up against uh, these politicians who are trying to pollute their their town and don't really give a shit about the citizens and uh, dump toxic waste all over it. So, but this is a this is not like your ordinary a superhero film it is super gross and it is incredibly violent people get their limbs ripped off or toxic just doesn't give a shit about uh criminals he's uh uh will, will kill a criminal in this film but um it is uh he's an enduring character i would say when i saw this was on the list i just i shook my head and smiled and I, was, <laughs> you know, I think this film is it perfectly encapsulates what genre comic book movies are um and comic book movies today could come nowhere close to do what this film does i mean never never mm-hmm. could you could you see even a parody comic book movie do something like this uh yeah i mean i think stuff like james gunn has done uh who worked for for trauma when he was younger and he's gone on to do the guardians of the galaxy and the latest suicide squad movie oh um, interesting. yeah yeah I think, yes but i don't think it would go the links that this film goes um there are some really offensive things in this film. Um, and there are also some really 
violent things in this film. So I think it, it would come close to this. And I'm interested to see there's a remake coming out, I think, this year, where Peter Dinklage is playing uh, the Toxic Avenger. Really? And, uh, yeah. So I'm interested to see wow. how it's going to play with a modern sensibility. Um, no kidding. Yeah. So I think we, we could get close to it, but I don't think we would get quite to the level of, of, um, of parody that this is going for. That might be an interesting list for us one day. Um, remakes of genre movies today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to say also, uh, kind of uh, linking this film to the Ninja Turtles, is that this film also spawned a children's cartoon uh, in the 90s. Oh, I'm not sure if you're I familiar with it. I forgot about yes, that. Yes, <laughs> The Toxic Crusaders, um, which was more, probably more in spirit with uh, Captain Planet because it was dealing with environmentalism right. and pollution, uh, but definitely had a Toxie had a team of other guys who were like him. So it was sort, sort of similar to Ninja Turtles, but it's such a strange idea for a cartoon based on this kind of movie. Oh, I, I really did completely <laughs> forgot about Toxic Crusaders until you said that. <laughs> All right, what do we have at number six, my friend? Yeah, number six, we're uh, hitting the 90s here again uh, with a film that uh, really illustrates the complexity and uh, maturity of comic books uh, at the time. And we're talking about The Crow from 1994. And uh, as far as comic books go, they're kind of considered uh, fair for children up until the 80s or late 80s where um, writers started to really branch out and make comics for adults um there may be some things that predate that but really in the 80s it's kind of considered like when Watchmen came out sure. or um the killing joke the batman uh comic by alan moore um neil game is writing sandman these sort of things um but uh you know right after that james obar this creator comes out with this comic book of uh that he wrote about uh a man who's killed and his wife is killed and um, he comes back from the dead to get revenge on the gang that, kill that killed him and wronged him. And this is a way for him as a, as a creator to deal with the death of his own um, girlfriend, or, or I don't think they were married with her, his, his fiance, uh, who died in a um, drunk driving accident. Um, and so he wrote this comic book to try to alleviate uh, his own uh, anxieties and, and feelings of depression out of that. Um, and the film adaptation is just uh like a perfect way to adapt something to the screen like this it's dark it's serious um and it has uh, a you know a man dressed up in this uh, face paint and everything so but it doesn't ever veer into goofiness um where everything is 100 believable yeah this is a this is a dark uh violent revenge flick where um i say dark because visually i don't even think the sun comes up until uh the end of the film like maybe in the last scene uh so you know aesthetically it's dark um and it pulls a pulls a lot of influence from like post-punk and new wave and you can even see the illustrations of the, the character uh the comic are based on like robert smith from the cure things like that um so yeah this is a great picture to kind of look at when you want to see an adaptation of a comic that was intended for adults and the movie was definitely intended for adults yeah so first off i will say that this is the one trailer i watched on full screen this morning because I simply love this movie for so many reasons. Um, secondly, if this, if I were to take your list and make it my list, I would put this one at number one without a doubt. So my friend, putting it Ooh. at number six, what the hell, man? I don't know. <laughs> All right. But I love this movie. And I think it's one of the best films that represents what the 90s were and how it was such a decade of pushing back against previous decades. And it was about finding its new identity going into a brand new millennia that was coming up soon enough and it does like you said it, it 
does have a few one-liner jokes here and there that kind of makes it a little kooky, but it most certainly is a film that takes itself seriously. And it has one of my favorite quotes of all time that I still use. And I'm curious if you can guess what that quote is. Go ahead, give it a shot, give it a shot. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume you don't say it can't rain all the time because that would just be cheesy. But, oh, uh, that is it. That is it. And how dare you <laughs> say it? it's cheesy? How dare you, sir? How dare you put this at number six and you say it's a cheesy line? It's not. It's not. Uh, okay. Uh, it's one of my mantras I live by. Okay. No, that's good. Um, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. And one thing we don't know talking about. So anyone who's listening who's not uh, familiar with this film, it was the the movie that should have made Brandon Lee, son of Bruce Lee, a star, but he actually, you know, he was. Uh, tragically killed during the making of the film but if you watch this film if you don't know anything about him um i think you'd see what, what a movie star he would have been like he would just he's just phenomenal in this movie i agree this would have been the film that launched brandon lee's career without a doubt without a doubt all right now let's move into our top five what do we have coming in at number five yeah, number five, uh, I wanted to discuss horror comics because horror comics are such a huge part of comic books, but maybe aren't necessarily a um, topic that is involved in the mainstream cinema of comic book adaptations, um, especially because they don't involve superheroes, so they're kind of pushed off to the side. But uh, one of the most successful uh, television shows of all time is based on a horror comic, The Walking Dead. Um, but we're not talking about oh, that that's today. A good point. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we're ta talking about today is uh, EC Comics, which brought us Tales from the Crypts and Vault of Horror and all these sort of like short story collections uh, of, of horror stories. And although there is a 70s film based on Tales from the Crypt, uh, the one film I wanted to talk about is an homage to th that whole, uh, those whole publications. It's Creep Show from 1982. Um, and the reason I picked this over Tales from the Crypt is because uh, Creepshow goes out of its way to incorporate like what co the cover art looked like into the film with the with the opening um, credit sequence. It's got uh, animated animated sequence to kind of reflect that. It's got uh, introduction of panels into the frames, the colors that come in to the into the stories. Um, the film itself is an is an anthology film, which sort of also represents how the comics were published because they'd be short stories in the comics, so it'd be these little uh, horror stories, um, and it is a uh, collaboration between two titans of horror, George A. Romero, who made Night of the Living Dead, and it was written by Stephen King, who was also in one of the shorts. But yeah, this is a fun uh, horror film it's in, uh, with, uh, I think it's five five great stories in it with all the sorts of different horror things in it, but uh, just watching it, you can really see the aesthetic of uh, horror comics. Yeah, you know, you had The Crow at number six, so I was like, all right, where is he going with this? He, he got to have some stuff at number five. And then you come with creep show and I'm like, all right, I never saw this before, but what we got, what we got. And then I'm like, wait, what? I was like, I was like, what is this? What's going on here? I was like, I, like I said, I never saw this, but it really came off as kind of like you said, um, a Tales from the Crypt kind of parody horror film. And I kind of wondered, like, would you consider this maybe like a predecessor to your your scary movies or something like that? Like real parody horror film that we would know more in the modern era? Oh no, 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 no! I don't think this is a this is a parody. It's got some tongue-in-cheek comedy to it, okay. uh, and that's sort of the you know to to alleviate the horror. But it's definitely not a parody. But I will say that it does okay. in in those humorous moments, it does kind of go uh, towards more of the wholesome side of like because so I, which I should preface this by saying these comics came out in the fifties, um, and they oh, were wow. a huge. They were a huge part of of uh, not to get on a tangent, but they basically 
um, a huge part of this moral outrage against comic books of the time because uh, parents thought they were ruining uh, the minds of the young readers. And so they came up with this code for comic books, much like the MPAA for movies or um, what, what do you call it for the for music later on uh, in the 90s with the parental advisory stickers. And so they came up with this code where and then there was this censorship on them. So horror comics were responsible for um, kind of almost mainstream um, audiences demonizing comics uh, with these graphic illustrations of dead people and and violence and stuff. So, um, but the movie, this movie, Creepshow, definitely takes some of that um, that wholesomeness and kind of brings it in there. Some of this uh, maybe outdated, um, you know, um, you know, American ideas into the film, uh, even though it's a product of the '80s. Um, and that's, I think, some of where that goofiness comes from. Gotcha, gotcha. It was raining because the trailer i mean trailers can be misleading or so and plus i wasn't quite sure what the uh what the plot line of it was but i like that you brought up you know that horror comic books were really in some part responsible for the the comic book code on morals which was like you said it was a huge debate going on in the 50s and 60s people thinking that comic books were warping the minds of children and youth and i think in many ways that same discussion kind of evolved later in the 90s and in the 2000s to be the exact same thing except for take out the word comic books and put in video games oh yes 100 percent. yeah it's the exact same conversation and like you rightfully brought up you know um, music with parental advisory stickers and things like that it's all the same conversation just it's remarketed into different sectors of society to try to limit freedom as far as content being produced mm -hmm. yeah and we're now we're talking about it in uh, children's literature in uh, a lot of these schools right now yeah exactly exactly so it's all still relevant and it's still just a huge discussion that never got finished <laughs> all right but let's keep going on to number four on your list yeah uh keep trickling along here uh one thing i did want to talk about was indie comics and uh if anyone doesn't know what that means it means sort of self-published comics or smaller publishers so uh, in the world of comic books there kind of have always been two massive uh, companies that put out comics as far as like mainstream comics go and that's marvel and dc um and then there are some other smaller ones like if you're really into comics you could you know who the smaller ones are but indie comics are maybe people who uh self-publish their own comic books or get picked up by these smaller uh publishers uh but i think aesthetically a lot of these comics don't necessarily involve weird and strange things or superheroes or anything like that there are a lot of comic books that are just about people and have a more literary quality to them so uh, i want to talk at least about at least a bit a little bit about that avenue with this choice uh number four i'm talking about ghost world from 2001 um ghost world was written and illustrated by daniel klaus who's one of my favorite comic book uh, writers and illustrators uh and he wrote these little shorts uh in another publication where he was just about these two young girls who are uh, their high school graduation is approaching and it's just these little snapshots of of their uh, their angst and their their uh, disgust and and cynicism with their hometown and they don't really know what's going to happen uh once they graduate what's going to happen when they uh, step into adulthood and so this film is an adaptation of that which uh, all the shorts are kind of collected together as ghost world uh in a graphic novel so you can kind of read them but there's no real you know plot from beginning to end there's just these little short stories basically um, but the film itself is a is a really great adaptation of that by taking those little shorts and making it into a uh, a feature length film um, about these two girls um, living in this town. One is played by Thor Birch and the other by a young Scarlett Johansson, and they're just uh, you know 
bumming around town. They don't really like it much. And then uh, the main character uh, runs into a record collector played by Steve Buscemi. Um, and it kind of starts to hit on like how, you know, there might be one, there might be good things in your town, in your neighborhood. There might be good people who are um, around, but also there might be some cynical people around and you just kind of have to uh, choose what path you're going to go on. And uh, I think this is a great example that uh, comic books don't need to be about, you know, huge scale um, destruction and, and, and weird uh, things about you know mutating into things or or superpower or gaining superpowers, but they could just be about everyday life and um, the choices that you have to make in in your life. I couldn't agree with that more. That and this this film in general, and I'll get back to it in a second. Kind of took me to a time in cinema where you could more often see a lot of films in theater that were telling the simple everyday stories of our choices in life. And I had never heard of this, so, you know, obviously I'd never seen it, but you definitely see a ton of famous people in this movie, and it came out in 2001, and it, it kind of gave me, like, that 2000s vibe of, um, you know, that old MTV cartoon, Daria? Oh, yes, yes. It, you know, it kind of gave me that vibe, mm -hmm. and then, but it also made me think, like, at that time, no one was, no one knew what was going on at the turn of the millennia, like, 1999, <laughs> 2000, 2001, we were all just trying to figure out anything and everything, you know, just making different choices in life. And, you know, I, I really dug this trailer and I think I am going to check this movie out. Yeah, yeah. I would also recommend the comic book. Um, you can get the collection for fairly cheap, probably anywhere you can find comics. Um, and just like if speaking aesthetically, speaking of aesthetics, um, this comic is it's two tones. So it's only like green and black. There's no whites in the frames. Interesting. Um, yeah, and that's what I love about the aesthetic of uh, of indie comics is they could be just very simple. Um, and Daniel Klaus, I think, is is, an, is a very effective uh, storyteller where he could tell so much by using so little. I like that. I like that because we're going from this choice and telling a simple story but still getting so much from it. And then your next choice at number three is anything but a simple choice. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, number three, uh, we're getting into manga. Uh, and so we talked about this briefly uh, on another show. So I wanted to bring right, it back right. up here and, 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 and uh, talk about it. Uh, but I couldn't think of a better adaptation to talk about manga. Because um, one, it's adapted to the screen in anime form by the person who wrote and illustrated the manga. So um we're talking about, of course, Akira from 1988, the landmark anime film. Uh, I don't really know the the context of what it meant for when the manga dropped, but I do understand it's, it's also highly influential. Uh, I believe it's in six or seven volumes in total. Um, so it's a great big epic, uh, whereas the film is a two-hour um, adaptation of that. Um, and so if you're unfamiliar with Akira, it is it takes place in Neo-Tokyo, which is, I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, after the second time a um, atomic bomb is dropped on Japan. And it's this futuristic world where um, the establishment is collapsing and there are these religious cults uh, kind of in the streets and biker gangs are uh, running around everywhere. And two of the main characters are in one of these biker gangs. And uh, things get really weird because there is something called Akira. And there are, uh, in, in, in relationship to that, there are these um, beings with sort of uh, psychic powers or powers that extend from that. And uh, Tetsuya, one of the main characters, gets infected with this or unlocks his ability. And things get 
really really strange after that where there's a lot of body horror and um you know it, the second half of the film is, is very up for interpretation i would say but uh yeah it's it's sort of like like we talked about with tetsu the iron man uh getting into these parts of japanese culture with uh body horror and mutations and the effects of um radiation upon their society and the effects of technological advances on their society and to me i just absolutely love this film um and f especially for its weirdness because it just really goes for it um and yeah i'm, I'm interested to see because uh, you're a much bigger anime fan than i am which what's your thoughts on uh, akira are oh, why don't you just go tell everyone i'm a nerd squared yes okay um there's nothing wrong with the anime it's, yeah, it's an sure, amazing sure. medium yes. <laughs> That's right. Everyone now knows I love video games and anime, and I'm a political scientist, and, and let's just pile up anything more nerdy we can. Um, and I normally carry a 20-sided dice in my pocket, but what that's for, <laughs> that's on a different a different episode. Um, this anime, so before anime, before this one, before Akira in 1988, anime and animation in general, like cartoons, wasn't really taken seriously and you didn't really get that many films that took themselves seriously and so much so that you wouldn't even call it a film like this film was over was about two hours long but they created a new word for it so they wouldn't call it cinema they called it anime because they wanted to make sure no 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 this isn't film this isn't cinema this is this is anime this is something different but okay. this one film here took itself serious and it changed everything for anime. This is the beginning of an era. It's the building blocks of an international film movement that has never stopped and is still thriving today. You know, anime is still everywhere and it's in all parts. It starts here with Akira. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're absolutely right that it goes into some extremely complex topics, especially during the second half of the film. And it does get into that, that body horror, which, you know, some later anime in the 90s kind of tackled as well. More current anime, I think, have stepped away from that because anime has sprung so much so into pop culture that now they're making serious anime that appeals to a wider audience. They're not just making anime to attract people who read manga or who read comic books, you know, uh, to think in a bigger terms of the whole conversation of today. Today, anime is made toward everybody. Um, so yeah, I think this is a great choice to really represent the whole anime movement and what it is, and it all started here. Yeah, yeah. I will say that as far as comic book adaptations go, um, I've at least flipped through the the book itself. And as if you're if you're into manga, uh, you know, mangas are are traditionally in black and white, and then uh, adapting that to the anim into anime, it, you know, it comes in, into color, um, and then so like the iconic red jacket of the main character you know is not necessarily in the or you know not really it's in the it's in the manga but it's not as visually striking in the manga uh because it's a, such a huge part of our pop culture now that red jacket or, or not his red jacket but the the bike is red and like with his jacket with the pill in the back right right um that stuff but i will say like uh what really to elaborate on like what really set this movie apart from the you know earlier iterations of anime is the animation attention to detail like the animated just small hand by hand small sections of the frame to get these minute details into the frame whether they're like city streets or uh interiors of like bars or just like painstakingly uh crafted and then to me the thing that always stood out was the lens blur 
or the light blur from the bikes when they're racing. And I think that really stuck out to a lot of audiences because you could see the motion on the screen uh, and the, the idea that this is all done by hand still um, is just, you know, it's just fantastic. I think you're right. And I think it, it bridges the gap to where if this was non-anime, if it was a motion picture, we would be in which everything you just said, we'd be talking about cinematography, right? Mm -hmm. But we're talking about it in the scope of an anime and cartoonists or animeist artists drawing these things. And I think this is one of the first films that treated the background of the story itself as cinematography. Um, and you get a beautiful landscape throughout this movie that we just, we didn't see in animation before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm interested, I guess, because I don't, I, I've seen a few modern anime films, and I think in our culture, um, Miyazaki's films, the Studio Ghibli films, have really taken over as the largest interest. And I, and I understand that like, there's a lot of television, uh, like Cowboy Bebop and stuff, which I'm really into, uh, but not necessarily, you know, Cowboy Bebop's like 20 years old now. Um, right. But uh, you watch a lot more anime, and I think we previously talked about how um, you thought that the, this picture specifically was was uh, a little dated. And I'm wondering um, if you could offer anything to me as something that's a modern example of anime that I should go check out um, to try to get hip to something that is sort of cutting edge or, or, or a new modern classic or something. Oh, so you really got me under the bus for being an anime. <laughs> um, modern choices of anime. Yeah. Right, so I will tell you... So the the newest thing out, and it's still in the middle of, well, no, let me backtrack and give you uh, a non-US example. Um, I'd say one of the more recent ones that just wrapped up its, I think, fourth season not long ago is uh, Attack on Titan. Okay. It's probably one of the more popular ones over the past know, five years or more. Mm -hmm. um, it's really captivated international audiences. Um, another one that's getting a restart for a continuation of the storyline that is it's been several years since it's been finished but it'll start back up in september is bleach mm, um, that's okay. going to get started in a while but i think those two are, are good examples and mm. for a u.s well no no i'm not going to go into it i'm not going to go into it there's <laughs> another example but i'm not okay. throwing myself under that bus all right all right after the episode yes. and for all you listeners yeah. out there yeah, you can come at me with what it is, but I'm not telling. <laughs> All right, what's your number two yeah. on the list? Yeah, number two, I'm circling back to the idea of like where comics come from and the and the the uh, general uh, feeling of them. And so we're going back to the '60s, and this is this this pick would make a great double feature with Batman '66. Uh, talking about Danger Diabolic from 1968. This is an adaptation of an Italian comic book um, about a master thief who loves to steal from the rich and does not give to the poor he uh loves collecting wealth and just screwing over the system and he's got a supermodel girlfriend and he's got fun gadgets and uh cars that can uh drive on the road and then turn into a boat as it goes into the ocean and um yeah it's like uh the perfect villain movie except for the villain is the main character so you're kind of rooting for him to take down credit card companies and and uh, greedy banks and stuff um and it's kind of the opposite of uh, of James Bond. So this is the kind of guy that James Bond would be be after um, in, in the 60s, not in the modern context. But uh, yeah, he's dressed like a cat burglar. He's got different colors for his outfits and camouflage and uh, on in his surroundings. Um, this film is so um, 
colorful and psychedelic and strange. Uh, it's definitely a movie of its time, but it definitely brings in all these these pulp elements. Like I said earlier, uh, the adventure. Uh, there's a scene where he climbs a wall like of a castle to break into a place, which is uh, recreated in the body rocking video by the Beastie Boys. Um, yeah, this is a fun flick. It, you know, it's it's tr just true fun all around. And uh, yeah, it's the it's the the movie we need to explore super villainy. It's interesting because when I was watching the trailer, I hadn't seen this one either, but it most certainly made me think of a cross between James Bond and Batman from the 1960s. Um, and it also kind of gave me this vibe of like a, a Bonnie and Clyde feel. Is that kind of how it takes itself? Yeah, a little bit, but uh, it never takes itself seriously. So, you know, the ending of Bonnie and Clyde, you can cut that part out. Uh, but yeah, okay. just uh, getting away with a robbery and then making love in a, in a rotating bed filled with, you know, the entire cash flow of a small european country yeah james pond and batman <laughs> in the 1960s that's what it sounds like for sure yeah um it was a cool choice and especially like the way that it ended and i'm not going to spoil it uh for any of those who may be interested but the the ending of the trailer in and of itself i was just like wow i was like that's pretty out there yeah <laughs> all right my friend and take us to your number one top comic book movie classic yeah, I struggled with this one because I really was trying to piece together what's the best comic book movie I could think of. Um, and I kept coming back and coming back to this one. And I have to say, yes, I think this is by far the best comic book adaptation ever made. Uh, it is Scott Pilgrim versus the World from 2010. Um, it's, I'm already, I can't believe we're already 11, you know, 12 years away from when this film came out. Um, this movie is based on the comic book series, which I believe is six volumes, uh, which is an indie comic that became a huge sensation. It's a Canadian comic book that is an homage to manga in its formats in black and white. And you got to read it uh, from right to left, um, just like Japanese comics, but it's in English. And it's just, uh, it's a love letter to, to indie rock music, it's a love letter to video games, and it's just got a great heart to it, and it's got some really emotionally uh, complex moments in the comic book, uh, and this adaptation takes all of six of those volumes and squeezes it into one fantastic film, um, and it's a story of this idiot Scott who is a, who is a uh, sort of a layabout, and he's in a band that's going nowhere, and he wants to date this, this uh, woman named Ramona Flowers, but in order to date her, he's got to fight her seven evil exes. And each ex in the film has a different aesthetic, and it's got uh, highly inventive fight scenes that kind of steal from different genres of film. There's a Bollywood one, there's this sort of um, Japanese-themed one, there's um, some really great choreography in all, of the, all the fights, but um, each of them have a different character uh, aesthetic to them and really plays on the idea of how much influence video games has in uh, the world of these young people. And uh, if it was based on a video game, well, it's not based on a video game, but I would still say it's probably the best video game movie ever made just because of the aesthetic of it and, and all the things that it includes like Zelda and Dance Dance Revolution and uh, Guitar Hero, all these things in there. Um, it's, you know, it just wraps up all these things greatly. And it's one of the, most highly inventive films you could probably ever see. Yeah, I need to breathe. <laughs> I'm going to be straight up with you here, man, and let you know and let all of my listeners out there know that our movie list friendship is on the line with this one, okay? I could <laughs> oh, not. Oh, really? <laughs> you put this film, which I'm not going to utter its name again, but you put it before The Crow and Akira. I was like, oh, 
breathe, breathe. We got to take it easy because I want to hear you out because I know lots of people love this movie. They they claim it's like the best underground and below the radar and, and great new direction kind of true comic book movie adaptation. So I am not certainly one of those people at all, but I have, you know, I have seen this. It's just been a very long time and I do trust your movie taste. So since it's been 11 or 12 years since I've seen it, Tell me why I should revisit this film. Yeah, I, mean, I think you should revisit it because, like, uh, if we're talking comic book adaptations, this thing is 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 like reading a live, living, breathing comic book. Uh, the sound effects, the just the background effects to it. Um, it's a really wonderful moment where um, Scott and Ramona are talking, but all of the the lights are blown out behind them, which you're not really paying attention to, but all of those little lights are actually uh, transformed into little hearts behind them. And it's just so inventive. Like every single frame of this film, it's just got either a visual gag or uh, the fight scenes are incredible. Um, it's got a lot of heart to it. Um, yeah, I'm interested to see, or we're interested to hear what you dislike about this film. Let me think, let me think. Where was I 10 to 12 years ago? All right, so now honestly rethinking it, I might have not been paying that much attention when I watched it. Okay, maybe, maybe. So I will tell you what, I will, I will take a revisit to this one, and I will get back to you on it. Okay. Because I can't, I can't think of anything mm -hmm. offhand mm -hmm. that struck me why I didn't like it. But yeah, okay, some bad, bad feelings there. Yeah, uh, but again, okay. when I honestly think about it, and what I was doing at that time in my life. No, I don't remember that well. So, <laughs> so, and we're not going into that on air either. So right. <laughs> listeners hit me up with that. I'm not answering, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I definitely know this film as being a film that comic book movie lovers hold in high regard. And it is way outside of the zeitgeist of your, your DCs or your Marvels. You know, it's an independent comic and it was an independent movie as far as compared to other uh, comic book films in general and the way that they approached it was so very different. And especially like in the fight scenes where they would actually like take off hit points and you would see like point numbers appearing on the screen, like a video mm -hmm. game, you know, it was very in innovative like that. So yeah, I very much know that many people hold this film in high regard and perhaps I would too, if I would remember it better. <laughs> yeah, I also see that there's uh, there's quite a few things that are not in the film from if you're looking for a one-to-one -one adaptation. But uh, another great thing about this film is how much of the things that they couldn't adapt into the story are plugged into uh, the set designs or in the background of things or the locations and just kind of really makes you feel like you're still in this world, even though, unfortunately, uh, six volumes of story can't go into a two-hour movie, so... Um, sure. Yeah, but yeah, it's just a. Uh, it's one of the most heartfelt adaptations I think I've ever seen, where you could feel like the people who made it truly loved and respected the, the um, source material. And you know, I will add to that and say it is the most recent inclusion on your list, and it was made during a time where all the other comic book movies were starting out. Um, you know, your your Chris Nolan Batman's and your Iron Man's were all starting to come out or out at around that time. So maybe it is time that I go revisit it to see in a comparison so many years later, how does it add up to those other films? Very nice, my friend. Very nice. And that's Gregory Day's top 10 list for comic book movie classics. And I got a few questions for you, my friend. Yeah. First off, why'd you pick this list this time? Well, you know, superhero movies uh, are only one aspect of what comic book movies are. And so 
superhero movies are this huge uh, behemoth taking over our culture. Um, and but they don't really accurately represent even superheroes, but uh, the way they are in comic books. So they're kind of kind of cherry picked from uh, comics by these uh, mega corporate movie productions. And so kind of wanted to give a little spotlight to all the other kind of corners of superhero movies or comic book adaptations or movies um, inspired by comic books. So I wanted to give a, a chance to talk about this because it's such a huge part of our culture right now and uh, offer some alternatives to anyone who's... Uh, who's given a listen. I like that. And I think not to, to dive too far down the rabbit hole, but I think without these films and a lot of their kookiness, we don't get to where we are today with comic book films and superhero films. Mm -hmm. For sure. But another one for you. Uh, do you have any, because, you know, 10 films over such a long time, it's, it's hard to, I, I can only imagine you have a hard time making your top 10 list every single month. <laughs> um, so do you have a couple runners up you want to give some shout outs to? Yeah, yeah. So one, I had to cut them because I didn't want to talk uh, too much about manga um, adaptations. And honestly, I don't really know that much about the source materials to really dive into them. But um, a couple of choices that I was thinking about was the Lone Wolf and Cub series, which is based on some manga uh, and the Lady Snowblood movie, um, But uh, which I think we talked about before on this this uh, show. But uh, the yeah. biggest one I had to cut out of here because I didn't want to do two Batman movies was... <laughs> Batman Returns from 1992. It's my favorite Batman movie. Um, it's just a really fucking weird movie. Um, Is that the in James in Schumacher? No, it's the one right before. It's the one where Danny DeVito plays the Penguin and Michelle Pfeiffer's oh, right. Catwoman. Christopher Walken is in it uh, as uh, as a corrupt politician. But it's such a strange film. It's incredibly sexually charged. Um, there's some really inappropriate things in there for kids. Um, but uh, it's violent and weird, and, but it kind of gets into these strange things about identity and like what it means for these characters to be these people, these weirdo, masked weirdos, and the relationship between the Penguin and Batman, who were both orphaned rich uh, kids who were who were really mentally fucked up, and then like the Penguin kind of projecting his his loss of his parents on Batman and Catwoman. It's just a really strange film um, at the heart of it, but it's this grand Tim Burton production, which is I think really great because it all practical uh which is the you know the key time of his career uh, as a visual storyteller so but i had to get it um because i think batman 66 is a little more it's it's much more fun and uh represents the feel of comic books whereas this one is much more of a tim burton's interpretation of the comic book yeah i like i like at least the the cinematography and the the background city of gotham that tim burton creates mm -hmm. in his batmans and he was supposed to create a superman movie where nicholas cage is gonna be <laughs> <Yeah>. superman <laughs> um and i would have really liked to have seen a tim burton superman film and what direction that would have taken uh, oh yeah yeah but uh, no go so uh it is what it is but now let me ask you a bit of a compare and contrast between these genre comic book movies and, and these classics of the past and the comic book movie movement of today. You know, your list is spread out over 70 years or, or 60 years. And I think maybe that's partially because we really hadn't seen comic book movies be the blockbusters that they are today, you know, when looking into the past. But that being said, you know, nothing last forever. And all genres in films, they have their ebb and flows and their peaks, and sometimes they go out for a while, and then they come back like, like the Western, for instance, sometimes it in it, it's in, and then other times you don't see a Western made for like 10 years. And your personal view on this, do you feel that 
that will happen with comic book movies today and where they are, or will they keep going strong into the future? You know, I think superhero films will continue to be as big as they are as they are right now for a while. Um, the comic book movie, I think we're kind of done with that as far as like peop- uh, the money people giving, I uh, you know, license to people who want to make smaller productions. Because um, I think the superhero has really won out over adapting all kinds of comics. Um, but honestly, man, I don't really know when this is going to end because I felt like it should have petered out by now but it's not still going strong. It's still the number one thing in theaters. It's still on every streaming platform. There's a new TV show or um, um, series going on uh, like with Peacemaker or like Moon Knight's coming out from Disney. Um, And then of course the Spider-Man, the last one was like the biggest grossing movie last year, but it's inevitable. Like it's going to have to uh, burst at some point. And um, I think the real, the real problem is putting all your eggs in one basket. So instead of diversifying your, your output as a studio, you're putting, all your money into superhero films and eventually it's going to have to come crashing down i don't know what that point is going to be because i honestly thought it would have happened by now but um you know i think it's inevitable so uh we'll have to see what it takes to have people turn away from this genre i think um if you look at other genres like the western which gave really did carry through for a many many decades but i think modernization and the the influence of other types of action films or mystery films helped um change audiences tastes and uh, right now with the way the world is all the all the stresses and concerns that people have about you know their personal lives or income or the state of the world politics all that stuff going to the movies to see these types of films helps them step away from that gives them two to two and a half hours of time to breathe and and not be in that in their um their own existence so it's hard to say when i think you know when these films are gonna uh disappear from our from our pop culture i think there's so many good points in there and so a lot of people two things they thought kind of after you know your um, what was it your avengers end game and all that stuff like they thought that was going to be the end of marvel for a while they thought mm-hmm. that superhero movies were were going to go down and dc superhero movies had already been decreasing in box office sales And then you get like this year and a half of the world and what it's been and the box office is like nothing. And then boom, Spider-Man hits theaters and now it's at over $1.8 billion. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, two things. People are definitely going back to the movies to make that kind of box office take. Number two, they're spending that kind of money on a superhero movie still. Yeah. Um, So I I think you're right. It really is hard to say when superhero movies will go down but i do like the fact that you differentiated between superhero and comic books uh, because a lot of your choices were comic book films not superhero films and i think you may be right that comic book films that are not also superhero films i don't know when is the last one i saw of that do you do you have a thought maybe on that when's the last comic book film we saw that's in a superhero film I'm honestly struggling to think of one that because there was a good period of, of where they were simultaneously coming out. Like there were films like History of Violence and The Losers and Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim being one of them were around that 2010 and, and you know time period where, oh, Iron Man was popular or it made a lot of money. So let's just kind of adapt anything. Um, I think the superheroes definitely won out uh, there. But honestly, I can't think of the last time I saw a movie that came out, maybe 
Snowpiercer. Oh, that's a one good that point. comes one that comes to mind. Um, but that was that's even been a number of years. Um, yeah, it's tough to say. Uh, I'm sure there's something that we're not thinking about, but uh, yeah, it's it's just nowhere near um, the bankability of of a superhero movie. Right, right. Yeah, now I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that and probably Google it a little bit later. All right, last one for you, and the one we always come back to, and it's it's really kind of a two parter as it always is, but. Why is this list specifically important to you? And two, why should other people view this list as important as well? Yeah, I think uh, I'm a, I was, I'm not so much now, but I used to be a huge comic book reader. Um, and I got into all kinds of aspects of it. And it was a very excited audience patron of the superhero film when it started, with the, when, the, when MCU kicked off. Um, but as the culture went on, I was like, wait a minute, this isn't quite, isn't quite what I get from comics. Like the, what I get from comics is that it's so far outside the mainstream. I get, I come here to see highly inventive um, stories from creators and art, the art and all that. And these films have kind of devolved into disaster films uh, with superheroes in them. Um, and so I, I want to put this list together to kind of illustrate the, not only the history, but also um, some, the different avenues of comics and how they relate to movies since we, since movies are the, uh, the focus here uh but yeah that's why i think it's important to kind of look back and say like oh this is just one piece of of what comic books are and, and the comic what the comic book movie is um but i think what's important about the list is um you know there are other things out there um you know i think as someone who doesn't really watch a lot of these movies anymore i do look for alternatives and i hear um you know things like peacemaker or the uh latest suicide squad movie which are related um kind of have these other influences on them and things creeping in to where they don't feel so um directed at baseline audiences so um yeah i think it's uh, it's important to kind of look at the history and you know a diverse um mix of things when you're looking at a certain genre and uh, hopefully if anyone's listening to this and they're interested in wanting to expand their their view of the comic book movie this would be a good uh, example for them to follow I think you're absolutely right. Uh, most of the time when people think comic book and superhero, they think one and the same, and they think past 10 to 15 years, and that's it. But there's a mm -hmm. long, rich history of it, uh, to be sure there, that offers a completely unique type of cinematic experience um, that I think is definitely out there for those who want to try something different. I like, oh, yeah, I like very it. true. Superb stuff coming at you right there, LeFi listeners. And Gregory Day, thank you so much as always. But before you take off, why don't you tell the good people at home where they can find you on the webs and what you've been working on lately? Yeah, so I'm working on a long-form series about revenge cinema. Uh, it's not quite a real genre, but it is sort of a, a fixation of genre cinema. So I want to really dig my... Uh, or sink my teeth into what it is to explore revenge in cinema. So uh, you could follow me over on Substack at badday.substack.com to read all my essays. And my latest one is going to be about Lady Snowblood, one of the great revenge films of all time. Uh, and then you can also follow me on hips, uh, excuse me, follow me on Instagram at hipsville AD. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on, my friend, as always. Thank you for having me. And that's Hipsville AD's top 10 list. Check our friend Gregory Day out online. Follow him everywhere. And if you're interested in writing in the show, write on in Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, email. Let your voice be heard. Always remember that Lo-Fi Poli-Sci is more than just me. It's the we 
that we talk to you soon, Lo-Fi listeners. Pickering and Dave, signing off. Sayonara.